Well, Steve, before you turn the thing on, let me say a few times on the Sabbath and uh, not uh, deal with what is in the book, but just so that I will know at what points maybe to um, either abbreviate or to expand, um, not to embarrass you, but how many have read the book? Great. It's the only time I've ever been glad. <laughs> so, my thunder is not stolen. The Garrisons would never tell on me. Why don't we have a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, indeed you are a great God. And we are in this place where your glory is manifested remarkably in the beauty that surrounds us, in the splendor of your creation. And yet we know that uh, this beauty here is pale in comparison to the beauty shown in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reveal in our hearts as you've brought us to know you. And we thank you that you have given us a time like this when in the midst of your created glory we can study your redeeming glory and have fellowship together in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that as we examine what your word says about the topic of the Lord's Day, that your spirit indeed will be gracious to us, that you will open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law, and that you, Lord, shall teach us and deal with us and um, give us uh, greater joy and delight in this wonderful gift you've given to us of the Lord's Day. Bless us now as we begin our study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. Normally I would read the uh, chapter in its entirety, but I think tonight I'll just read the two verses. They're also in your outline, verses 13 and 14. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own word, then... You will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Once there was a great king who loved his people. He established a beautiful city, and in the middle of that city, he built a most beautiful park. He brought trees and flowering plants from all over the world. He constructed pathways through the park with uh, sitting areas and ponds and streams. And in the middle of the park, there was a, a large amphitheater. And the king built the park so that his subjects could come there and be together in the park and that he would meet with them in the park. And it was a glorious place and a place of wonderful communion and fellowship with the people and their king. 
But then the king, as is the custom in these kind of stories with all types of kings, you know what he did, kids. He had to go away. And so when he went off to do what kings do when they go away, he entrusted the park to the rulers. But the rulers didn't care much about the king's park. And so they neglected the park. It began to get run down. The weeds began to grow up in the grass and in uh, the beds of flowers. The trees were not pruned and the ponds and the water became stagnant. The benches were broken and pretty soon people quit coming to the park. And although they would come to the amphitheater, they even began to neglect coming there. Uh, But then those rulers uh, went out of power and another group of rulers came into power on behalf of the king and uh, they had an interest in the king's cause and in the park. And so they immediately began a reclamation project and they uh, rebuilt the park. They uh, repaired the pathways and freshened the water supply and brought in new plants and, and fixed everything. And once again, the park was beautiful. But these new rulers were afraid that the park would get all messed up again if people used it. And so they kind of made it like a museum rather than a park. It was a memorial to the king. And so people could come and kind of look at the park, but you couldn't really use the park. One day, the king's son suddenly showed up. And one of the very first things he did was go up to the park and he tore down all the fences. And he opened up the park. He told people, now come on into the park and enjoy the park with me. And once again, the king's people came to the park and enjoyed the king and his son and it was a glorious place. But of course, history tends to repeat itself and the king and his son continued to do what kings and sons do and they were off and about and once again the rulers have let the park uh, fall into great disrepair. It is ugly. It is derelict. Uh, The streams again grow stagnant. The flowers uh, are not blooming and although the people are still coming to the amphitheater, There is also even now a decline uh, in their attendance there. Of course, you know the parable because you know the subject of the week. And this is the parable of the Sabbath or of the Lord's Day. And it pictures for us, I believe, everything that we're going to be talking about. Uh, as, As we've seen in this parable, that God has given to his people one day out of seven, as a royal garden, as a place where God's people were to come to have fellowship with him and with one another. But how in the history of the church that royal garden has been neglected and abused and how the Pharisees uh, then restored it but made it ugly in a sense because it couldn't be used and then how Christ came and opened up the park once again Uh, to the people and establish the Sabbath for uh, his people and how in the early church uh, the people loved the Sabbath. Uh, It declined in the Reformation and in Puritan in Scotland, uh, again, Puritan England and Presbyterian Scotland, again, uh, it was recovered, it was carried on in our own uh, country until about 50 years ago 
But once again, uh, rather than a park, today we could say that the Sabbath is a war zone. Or to follow our metaphor, it's a piece of land that the developers and the environmentalists are fighting over. <laughs> you see, as it lies there, uh, unused, the developers see this as uh, profit. And so they want to take the day and turn it into their own purposes uh, for their markets and uh, for their dollars and for their pleasures. Now, opposed to that are the uh, uh, historical society. And, and they want to preserve the day for traditional reasons. And they want to stop the encroachment of uh, the developers. But really, if they had their way, it still wouldn't be the part that God intended. And what I want you to see as we work through these passages together in these days and in the practical sections in the afternoon is that we do need to recover the Lord's Day. And we need to recover it in all of its beauty so that we will enjoy it and your children will enjoy it. Somebody asked me this weekend, uh, do you get tired of talking about the Sabbath? You know, you just... Sometimes when people write a book, uh, you know, they get to a point where they just don't want to uh, deal with that material anymore. And I said, there's no way, you see. I thank the Lord that he gave me the privilege to uh, understand and love his day, to write a book, and to get to teach and preach uh, what I believe the Bible says about the Sabbath in congregations and at conferences like this. Because frankly, there are a few more important issues before the church today. Just as it was said that justification was the doctrine of a standing or falling church, one writer said that the Sabbath was the institution of the standing or falling church. Hodge and Dabney said, if you lose the Sabbath, you lose worship. If you lose the Sabbath, you will lose Christian piety. We can make the parallel with uh, others of the commandments. Can you imagine a society uh, where property was not respected, where truth and contracts were not respected, where life was not respected? It would be pure chaos. And what the, the collapse of God's moral law in the last six commandments would do to a society, the collapse of the first four, and particularly the collapse of the fourth, will do to the church. I am convinced it is not hyperbole that as goes the Sabbath, goes worship, and goes the piety of God's people. Many of you have lived to see it. Increasingly, our services on Sunday evening are less and less attended. And so now churches are canceling their Sunday evening service because people aren't coming. And people aren't coming, why? because the Sabbath is no longer a day devoted to public and private worship. And thus, the worship of God's people declines as the Sabbath declines. But it also is a knife at the heart of true biblical piety, and I am convinced of that. And I think you'll, you'll see something of that as we start tonight by looking at this grand promise in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. Sabbath is necessary for a vibrant godliness in the church.
that will have a powerful effect in the world. And I begin with this passage, Isaiah 58, 13 and 14, uh, the grand promise or the great purpose, because it sets before us what I think is most beautiful and glorious about the gift of the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. It puts it in its um, positive light, even though it's somewhat couched negatively in its conditions, as you will see. But it sets forth a a glorious promise uh, for us. Uh, Isaiah is dealing here with the um, formalism of God's people. If we'd read the chapter, you would see how they were going through certain motions of religiosity. They were fasting. They were doing other things. And they were complaining because God didn't seem to be listening to them. And God said, I'm not listening because you're only going through the motions. And he offers them then the Sabbath as the antidote to their cold-heartedness, to their religiosity, to their uh, formality. He offers them the Sabbath as the, the cure for what ailed them. And it's the cure for what ails us as well. I want us to see two things here tonight, and only one got into your book. When uh, Lynn sent me back the uh, uh, faxes to check the outlines and the devotions, he and I were both more concerned about rearranging the devotions to fix how we were going to change the schedule, that I didn't look at the first outline, and half of it's missing. But that's my fault, but you can write it on the back. The first thing that we're going to see here is in verse 14 that God appoints the Sabbath day as a means of great blessing. And then in verse 13, God appoints the observance of the Sabbath day as the means of obtaining that great blessing. You want to write that in the back. God appoints the observance of the Sabbath day as the means of obtaining that great blessing. First then, God appoints the Sabbath day as a means of great blessing. We find in verse 14 one of the most remarkable promises in the Bible. Then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The first thing that God promises his people through the Sabbath is unsurpassed communion with God. He says that through the observance of the Sabbath that you will take exquisite delight in the Lord. A a remarkable expression. It's it's the expression that is, is used for anything that is a treasure to you. Whether it's an heirloom or a piece of jewelry or your grandchildren those things that delight you, that's the force of this word. And here he's saying that through the means of the Sabbath, you will find greater pleasure in God. You will take exquisite delight in Him. Isaiah chapter 66, I think it is, um, uses an expression... Maybe it's it's 61. Yes, verse 10, Isaiah 61. I will greatly, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. 
My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The same joy of the newlyweds in their marriage, in their wedding garments, is the joy that the believer has in the Lord. And and that's this pleasure, this delight that God is describing in Isaiah 58, verse 14, that through the Sabbath you will take delight in the Lord, you will find exquisite pleasure in Him. He will show you more of His beauty and glory. He will overwhelm you with His loveliness. There will be a communion that is exquisite and sweet, a fellowship that is indescribable. As we enjoy God through the day that He's given us for that purpose. Unsurpassed communion. Pleasure in God. Is that not something that your heart leaps at the thought of and cries out for? Is there any one of us here tonight that thinks that he or she loves God as as he ought? That takes pleasure in God as he ought? Do we long for heaven as we should, as, as we would think of it as Emmanuel's land, as the place where we behold Christ in all of his beauty and glory? Do not our hearts so quickly grow cold and uh, dispassionate? And here God promises to us a greater pleasure and unsurpassed communion with him. The second thing that's promised to us through the Sabbath is spiritual victory. He says, I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. This idiom is borrowed from Deuteronomy in the Song of Moses in chapter 32, verses 11 and 12 as like an eagle that stirs its nest, that hovers over its young. He spreads his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. There was no foreign God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. And here Moses is singing of the victory that God would give to Israel. We find a similar phrase in chapter 33, verse 29. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you and you shall tread upon their high places. To be on the high places of the earth was to have victory. Earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 25, the phrase is used as God promises uh, uh, victory to the people even though they will go through uh, captivity and exile. And here in chapter 58 in this very strange book where the prophet uh, anticipates captivity and then uh, promises the return uh, he promises uh, to the old covenant people a victory once again over their enemies. But of course we know that even as the return from exile was but a picture of the greater redemption that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, their victory over their enemies is but a faint picture of the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. 
A victory that Paul describes for us, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us because He who is in us is more powerful than He who is in the world. And what we see here is that God is promising through the Sabbath great spiritual victory to His people. And in this we learn that the Sabbath is in fact what our fathers called the means of grace. That uh, the means of grace are are those conduits, those aqueducts uh, through which the great reservoir of Christ's grace laid up for His people is ministered by Christ through His Spirit in His church to His people. And the Sabbath is here at at the heart of the means of grace It's through the Sabbath that God strengthens us and gives us victory. It's here that God builds up His church and makes it strong. It's here that the church has a sign to the world that we're different, that we are separated to King Jesus and we live for Him and by Him and in Him. It's here that we come often bruised and wounded and weary to the house of the Lord and the fellowship of His people. And we find the refreshment of grace. And we find the healing of the gospel. And we find strength and new resolve to go back out and to do battle with sin and Satan, the flesh, the world. Now I wonder... Is it not at least a consideration that one of the reasons that the church of Jesus Christ is so weak and powerless in the world and increasingly apparently redundant and and unimportant and that so few people are being converted even though the gospel is the most beautiful and powerful thing in all the world, is it not at least possible that our weakness is because we've cut our hair That like Samson, we've wounded ourselves by our neglect of the Sabbath. And thus, the Lord leaves His church in her weakness. He leaves her in her powerlessness. And is it not also true for us individually? Is it not least a possible consideration uh, that your spiritual weakness some of those things that you keep uh, falling back into or wallowing in, your lack of growth that bothers you, is it not least a possibility that it's because of your neglect of the Lord's day, this means of grace that God's given to you for victory? You see that. You will ride on the high places of the earth. His church will ride on the high places of the earth. We as people shall have victory as we grow in Christ Jesus. Now, victory is not freedom from persecution or suffering or chastening, but it is growth and it is to see the power of the gospel in our lives and in our churches. God here promises victory, spiritual victory, to us through the Sabbath. And then in the third place, in addition to unsurpassed communion and great victory, He promises us a fruitful, enjoyed 
inheritance. He says, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. Now again, the language is borrowed from the old covenant with the inheritance of the land and its prosperity that uh, God would give to his people. I think of, uh, uh, for example, Psalm 105, uh, verses 10 and 11. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. And that inheritance that was given to God's people was not simply the possession of the land, but the enjoyment of its fruit, its produce, its pleasures. And again, it's necessary for God through Isaiah to announce to his people that he would bring them back into that land. He would, he would restore to them to that, their inheritance and something of the joy of that inheritance. And again, we understand that the inheritance of the land is but a figure or a type of the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus, that we're not tied to a piece of real estate, but that as the fathers in the old covenant recognized the lamb but was but a, a reflection or a uh, direction to direct them to heaven and to communion with God, that we who live now in the fullness of time understand that our inheritance is Christ and it is the new life that is ours in Christ. And what we're told here is that just as Israel would come back and enjoy their inheritance, that we have an inheritance. And that through the Sabbath we can come to a greater enjoyment of that inheritance. Now, a nice summary of the inheritance is in the Shorter Catechism, where question 32 is, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. And as you know, the catechism will go on and talk about uh, those benefits which accompany or flow from them. And we'll come to that. But what we have here is a list of glorious privileges that we all recognize. Uh, regeneration. A justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and of course the glorification that is ours. But God intends for this to be much more than a list. These are pleasures, spiritual realities to be enjoyed. And so in question 36, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Now, you're a good Reformed folk, and you know all about the doctrines of regeneration, of justification, of adoption, and sanctification. Do you enjoy them? Do you enjoy them? Do you have this assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end? You see, that's what's being promised to us in this great promise. 
that we will have a fruitful inheritance, that we will enjoy our inheritance. It's not simply there to be looked at, to listed, undescribed, but it's to be personally enjoyed. What we see here is that it's in the Sabbath that God will grant to us the enjoyment of a greater assurance and a fullness of love and a joy in the Holy Spirit and a peace of conscience. Now, pretty good promises, huh? You can see why I say that I don't know three better promises put together in all the Bible than what is found here in connection with the Sabbath. And notice the signature at the end of the promises. For the mouth of Yahweh, the Lord, has spoken. This is a signature that God uses throughout the book of Isaiah to emphasize great declarations of grace. Let me just give you uh, one example tonight. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, that great gospel declaration. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Remember those um, Columbo movies, television show? I think they still do reruns. And his little, uh, his signature was, you can bank on it, you can take it to the bank. That's God's way of saying this, you see. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. He who cannot lie tells you, this is my promise. I stand behind it. Cannot fail. This is what God is saying to us, His people. These are the privileges He gives to us through the Lord's day. An exquisite pleasure in the Lord. Spiritual victory. And a joyful use of our inheritance. But that brings us then to the first or the second point that we see here, which is in verse 13, and that is that God appoints the observance of the Lord's day as the means of obtaining this great blessing. As you know, some promises in the Bible are unconditional and some promises are conditional. And this promise is a conditional promise. You see that in the way it's phrased. It begins in verse 13, if because of the Sabbath, and then verse 14, then you will take delight in the Lord. Now, I've been bringing you along with honey. I've put a carrot in front of you. Surely, there's not one of you here tonight that grasps anything of the meaning of what's been promised, that if you're a believer, if you're truly in Christ, your heart does not leap with joy at uh, a greater fullness of blessing in these things that I've promised, right? You want them. Okay? Here's the means that God has appointed. He's appointed the observance of the Sabbath day as the means of obtaining these great blessings. He calls us to a high regard for the Sabbath. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable. 
he sets this high regard for us, both negatively and positively, begins negatively. He says that uh, you must refrain from profaning the Sabbath, that you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day. Now, the language of my holy day looks both backward to Genesis chapter 2 that we'll consider in the morning and forward to the statement of Christ in Matthew chapter 12 that we'll consider Wednesday morning. Remember that Christ says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. It is his holy day. In fact, Isaiah goes on to use that phrase, the holy day of the Lord. And of course, John, the Isle of Patmos, sees the Lord on the Lord's day. And so this language anticipates the language of the Savior in Matthew chapter 12 and in John, uh, in Revelation chapter 1. But it also reflects the language of Genesis 2, 1 through 3, that God blessed the day and sanctified it or made it holy. And we're reminded here that God has set aside the Sabbath day as something that is special. Now, in the morning, we'll go in greater detail what that means, but let me simply summarize it for you now. What it means is that he set it aside from common use to the special uses of worship. Anytime in the Bible, when God sanctified something in the Old Testament, a thing, he set it aside from common everyday use to the special uses of worship. And so he sets the Sabbath before us now as something that is special. In fact, trampling underfoot, we come back to the idea of the park, you see. It's a beautiful garden. And if we're going to enjoy God's blessings, we must not trample it underfoot. When uh, my wife and I first got married, we lived in uh, a little town in Mississippi, and uh, we had an Irish setter that uh, was uh, dumb and wild, sweet, but um, this little country town, you know, you didn't keep your dogs in yards and stuff like that. We didn't have to do that there. But a little widow lady lived next door to me, and, and she uh, called me one day in her trembling voice. She says, Pastor, your dog is lying in my daylilies. And I looked out the window, and Eric sure was. He had trampled those daylilies underfoot. He had defiled her garden, and he and I were in trouble. Well, that's the image that is here, is that God's day is a, is a beautiful garden or it's holy ground, such as at, at Mount Horeb where God said, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. And God says that you show your regard for his day by not trampling it underfoot. Now, how do you trample the day underfoot? By doing your own pleasures. Now, the word... Uh, pleasures is, is a very big word. It, it has to do with uh, God's pleasures, man's pleasures, anything in which someone delights. In fact, uh, a great summary of, of what this word means is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It doesn't really come through in the, uh, in the English. There is an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event. That's what the New American Standard says. The word there is this word pleasure or delight, for every delight under heaven. And then it lists the 
a representative list of these things that we do all by God's sovereign appointment. And, and there you see how broad the word is. We could put it into a, a modern idiom by saying uh, doing your own thing, whether it's work or recreation or whatever it might be. If your focus on the Lord's day is to do your thing and seek your pleasure and not do his thing and seek his pleasure, then you are trampling it underfoot. You are profaning it. But of course, it's never God's intention to tie us up into a legalistic straitjacket and to keep us from having pleasure. Now, God seeks our pleasure. But he says, I want to define it for you. You let me define your pleasure and you'll be happy. And so he's not saying that you aren't to have pleasure. He's saying, don't do your pleasure on this day, but rather seek my pleasure. And so notice that the, it's expressed then in a positive way after he says, don't trample it underfoot by doing your own pleasure, but call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable. Now, this is a different focus from what some of us were raised with and how often we, and particularly you young people, think about the Lord's Day. He says, if you're going to have the proper regard for the Lord's Day, you must call it a delight. And in fact, it's the same word that he uses in verse 14 when he says that you will take delight in the Lord. You'll take delight in the Lord when you take delight in the Lord's Day. You'll find pleasure in the Lord when you quit seeking your own pleasures and seek your pleasures in Him on His day. When you and truly esteem it the best day of all. Now, sometimes when your kids wake up in the morning, what's the, one of the first thoughts that comes to your mom when you finally get conscious enough to have one? Oh, no. It's Sunday. I bet some adults have had that thought. And there, stretched out before us, is worship, and not going to the swimming pool, and not playing with our friends, or, you know, not knowing until Monday morning uh, who won the NBA championship. Oh, no. Now, is that calling today a delight? No, it's a, it's a legalistic burden. And that's not what God wants for you, you see. God wants you to find delight and pleasure in this day by observing it in the ways that he has appointed. So he says, delight in the Lord and call it honorable. Bestow honor on this day as God has bestowed honor on this day. It is the best day of all. It is the day that God created light. It is the day that Christ rose again from the dead. It is the day that he gave his spirit to the church. What a glorious day is this day that he has given to us and how we should honor it. Well, if we are to regard the Lord's day negatively by not profaning it, but positively by delighting and honoring in it, what does that entail? Well, again, and somewhat strangely, uh, God expresses it negatively. 
Now, I think there's a reason behind this. We know that the law is given because of sin. And that even as believers, there's a remnant of sin yet within us. And we have to be disciplined by the word of God. If we're not disciplined by the word of God, we'll be disciplined by the chastening of the Lord. And so God's word disciplines us. It's the instruction, the, the pedagogy of righteousness. And so how do you honor the Lord's day? Well, he tells you negatively how you honor the Lord's day by telling you three things that you should desist or cease from doing. He says you honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own words. You honor it by desisting from your own ways. Now, the word ways, again, is one of those broad words in Scripture. Some try to get around this and say what really here is talking about the ways of sin and you desist from your sin. And it is used in times uh, for uh, the, the way of sin. Uh, all we have gone astray. We've gone each into his own way. But it's used of the ways of God. It's used of the way of the righteous. And we see here in this context, because it's a neutral word, way, it's got to be interpreted where it's found, that uh, surely God's not attaching these special promises just to the fact that you don't sin. No, he's talking here about the Lord's day. Are, are, is there any better promise to refrain from sin on the Lord's day than to refrain from sin on Monday? No, no. You see, what he's saying is you don't do your ways on his day, you do his ways. And that if you pursue your ways, then you're sinning, even though they can be legitimate things. And I think we particularly have here uh, a prophetic exposition of the fourth commandment. When he says, desist from your ways, he's talking particularly about your work and your business. This is not a work day. It is not another day like the other six days to do our thing, uh, to do our work. That we are not to work on this day outside of those works of necessity and mercy, and we'll talk some about those uh, come Wednesday morning, nor are we to cause others to work on this day. It's not a day for slipping into the office in the afternoon or going and working at the store or doing homework or unnecessary housework. Nor is it a day to cause others to work by going out to a restaurant or someplace that entails other people to be violating the Lord's Day. He says if you're going to honor the day, you must desist from your own ways. Then he adds to that by saying you desist from your own pleasures. Now this word pleasure is the word that's used uh, up in verse 13 earlier, uh, which I said is, is a big word, your own thing, but put alongside way here, it's most often interpreted as uh, the pleasures of our recreation. Those are pleasures that we seek, lawfully given to us by God, uh, in various uh, recreative uh, re recreation or sports or relaxing activities. You see, this is not a day for private or personal recreation. It's not a day for playing tennis or uh, going to the zoo or watching a movie. No, it's, it's the Lord's Day. This doesn't mean that God is opposed to a moderate use of recreation the other six days of the week. He's given us six days. And we'll talk about that, uh, Lord willing, tomorrow morning. Uh, God's not opposed to fun. 
are to, are to recreation. But what he's saying is that, that the Lord's Day is the day of recreation. It is a different kind of pleasure. It's a different kind of recreation. And we'll talk about that. And particularly as we, in the closing message, we'll talk about that in relationship to the recreative aspect of, of corporate worship itself. Uh, nor is this saying there can be no physical activity. We'll, we'll talk about how we must structure the day for our small children. And it's absurd to think that a, a child that goes a lot faster than five miles an hour Monday through Saturday can suddenly be put into neutral on And all this energy is just bubbling over inside of there like a boiler that's about to blow up. And we've got to be creative. We've got to give children physical ways to get rid of some of that energy. And I know adults, if they don't get out and go for a walk on Sunday afternoon, they're going to fall asleep in church on Sunday night. So we're not talking about no physical activity. We're talking about activity, though, that is structured for the purposes of the Lord's Day. That's very different, you see. It's activity that is structured to accomplish the purposes of the Lord's Day. Also a note here about physical rest. Some people... And I've heard in presbytery exams that people say, I take exception to the Westminster Standards because they say that the whole day is to be devoted to deeds of public or private worship except so much as deeds of necessity and mercy. And they say, well, I think I should be able to take a nap on Sunday. Well, I don't think God minds you taking a nap on Sunday. That's not what the standards mean there. A nap is necessity and mercy sometimes for a young mother who uh, has chased those children at 75 miles an hour uh, six days a week. And that might be necessary, again, to go back and do other of the purposes of the Lord's Day. So it's not, it's not that a nap is ruled out, it's the whole day being spent in idleness, sleeping away the afternoon, or doing nothing of spiritual import or purpose uh, in the private hours of the day. It's a day for spiritual pleasures and recreation, a day to desist then from our own pleasures. And finally, it's a day that we are to desist from speaking our own words. Now, what does this mean? Well, it's, it's the words about our works and our pleasures. Now, again, I don't, part of Christian fellowship, if, if I only see you on Sunday and I've been praying for you, you've had a problem at work, a problem at home or something like that, you know, it, of course I want to know what's going on in your life. That's part of our life together in Christ is, is how's work going, how's home, how's the family, and those types of things. It's not talking about uh, conversations that are, are seeking to build up and promote one another and our whole lives together in Christ, but the vain conversations, uh, you know, about... Well, you know, I meant to call you yesterday. Uh, I really need to change my insurance policy. How many times have we done that on Sunday? Or, um, Lynn, I got a foot ache. And uh, would you mind looking at my foot? Or we don't watch the ball game, but we come to church uh, and talk about the one that was on Saturday, or we're, we're listening to hear who did watch it, so we'll know who won. And this is the thing it's talking about. It's words that are not designed to promote the purposes of God in the day. Now, this is a matter of discipline. And 
Anybody that doesn't sin with his tongue is a perfect person. And so we recognize it's, it's perhaps in, in one sense the hardest thing for us. But the thing that we want to do is to discipline our speech to promote uh, the well-being and godliness in our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And so we honor the day by desisting from our works, pleasures, and words about our works and pleasures. This is summarized in Shorter Catechism 61. What is forbidden in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment forbiddeth the omission or careless performance of the duties required and the profaning the day by idleness are doing that which is in itself sinful or by unnecessary thoughts, words, or works about our worldly employments, our recreations. But as I said, the purpose of all of this is not to keep us from having fun. It is to open up to us the vista of the glorious pleasures that God has designed for us. It is set before us the way in which we walk in order to receive that which he promises, exquisite delight in him and spiritual victory and a joyful, pleasurable enjoyment of our inheritance. And so we come in conclusion to the positive and how is the Sabbath to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. Now, tomorrow afternoon, I'll seek to unpack that, but let me just summarize for you right now and bring all this together. And that is that God says, turn aside from these other things and honor the day. Now, the first thing that you do is that you rest in Christ. You cannot honor his day without consciously using it to remind you that you have but one Savior and one resting place. And that is Christ alone. And we worship on the day of his resurrection that we might have him set before us as the perfect Redeemer who has done everything for our justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. And thus, set him before you. Enshrine him in your heart. Begin with him as you wake. And consciously rest in him on that day as you do every day, trusting in Christ alone. And then seek God in the day. You know, we can go through all these motions. We can desist from all these things. We can do the acts of public and private worship, but if we're not seeking God and communion with Him in those things, we're really not any better off, are we? And so as we rest in Him, we seek Him in the things that we do, as it is for His sake that we refrain from doing other things. And then as we rest in Christ and we seek God in communion with Him, then as we come to corporate worship, it will be a great pleasure. And as we come to those private duties and as we spend time with our children, it will be a wonderful delight. And we'll find suddenly that we have before us a day for fellowship and service 
and we will have a new energy and passion for those things. And God will give us more of himself. And God will cause us to grow in grace and strength. And God will give us a great delight in those privileges that are ours as his sons and daughters. Now you want that, don't you? I want that. I want more of that. And that's what this is all about. For some of you, this is either new or contradictory. I probably have run all over you tonight with track shoes. I don't apologize for that. Your argument's not with me. It's with God. If you can come to me and show me that this is not in His Word, then that's fine. That's where we'll talk. But don't just respond with a prejudice that this has contradicted what you've done or how you've been raised or what you like. No, I challenge you to use the time this week in our studies and in conversations with one another, questions and answers. Use this time to look once again, seeking God the Spirit to show you what God intends for you on this day. And of course, there's not one of us that has ever kept Sabbath. And that's why we rest in Christ, isn't it? And we don't trust our Sabbath keeping. We trust Him. And perhaps tonight we are convicted. We should be. I am. Uh, We want to please God on this day. We recognize how far short we fall. Or perhaps there's new areas that we've not thought about. Well, the first thing that we do with those things, we bring them to Christ. And we ask God's forgiveness for Christ's sake. And then we ask grace might move forward and that God give us grace to grow in this area. It's a great thing, a great privilege and I trust that we'll have a wonderful time as we study these things together and wrestle with them and uh, seek God's grace for ourselves. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you indeed are a great God and we thank you that we know you. We thank you for this day that you've given to us and its great purpose is to bless us. And we pray that you will uh, cause us to be more enthusiastic and um, excited about the privileges of the Lord's Day and that you will bless our study together and that you indeed will cause it to be a blessing to us and to our congregations, to our families. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.